So we are continuing our Advent series, The Gospel Origins. Advent is the season where we prepare for the arrival of Jesus. And so we are looking at the origin stories of the gospel. This fall, we introduced our new vision and direction for TFRC. The gospel is real. The gospel changes everything. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus rose from the dead. That's the gospel. And we are looking at the origin stories of the gospel. And what do we mean by origin stories? Well, an origin story simply answers the question, how did we get here? How did we get here? Uh, in movies, you have backstories and prequels that tell us how we got to this point in the movie. And every superhero uh, has an origin story. And that origin story tells us how the superhero came to be, how they got their powers, how their enemies became their enemies. Uh, Superman, Iron Man, the Incredible Hulk, they all have origin stories. Well, Christmas is an origin story of the gospel. And it addresses the question about the gospel, how did we get here? Uh, the Christmas, Christmas is the story of our Savior's birth. Um, and so the origin you know, story would ask questions like, well, you know, how did, what do we need to be saved from? And where did the Savior come from? And what's so special about this town, Bethlehem? Uh, one aspect about Jesus that matters is his ancestry. Who were Jesus' ancestors? What do his ancestors tell us about him? And to answer those questions, we need to once again go back, back to the beginning. Our scripture for this morning is Genesis 49, verses 8 to 12. Uh, Genesis is the first book in the Bible. If you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and turn there to Genesis 49. Or if you have your phones, you can just use your phones to look that up. Again, we are going back to the beginning. Uh, Jesus' lineage is from the tribe of Judah. Now, there were 12 tribes of Israel. Ten of them were named after sons of Jacob. Two of them were named after Jacob's grandsons. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, named after Jacob's son, Judah. So as we look at the gospel origins, let's look at this ancestor of Jesus. Uh, this passage is Jacob blessing each of his sons, and we are going to focus on his blessing on Judah. Our scripture reader is Sawyer Irby. So Sawyer, go ahead and make your way on up to the podium. As he does, I'm going to ask if you're able, please stand and face the center of the room. Uh, we read from the center of the room to remind us that scripture is to be central in our lives. And we stand because we believe this is the word of God. And so, um, Sawyer, whenever you are ready, please read from Genesis 49, verses 8 to 12. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Sawyer, thank you very much. You may be seated. There are some things that just, to seem, that just seem to be in a particular family's blood, where multiple generations 
of the same family excel in a certain profession. There are family lines through certain professions. There are political family lines. Uh, the Kennedys have had a family member in politics since the 1950s. Uh, the Bush family has had a family member in politics since the 1960s. Politics is in their blood. Uh, there are sports family lines. In football, the hottest college recruit right now is a kid named Arch Manning. He is the grandson of NFL quarterback Archie Manning. He's the nephew of NFL quarterbacks Peyton and Eli Manning. Arch is only a junior in high school, and his games are already being broadcast on TV. Quarterbacking is in their blood. Uh, in the NBA, Seth Curry is probably going to go down as the greatest three-point shooter in history. His brother, Stephen Curry, also plays in the NBA. He's a great shooter. Their father, Del Curry, also played in the NBA, and he was a great shooter. Shooting is in their blood. In baseball, there are two players in history with five seasons of 30 home runs and 30 stolen bases. There's only two that have ever done that. And those two players are Bobby Bonds and his son, Barry Bonds. Baseball is in their blood. There are acting family lines. Uh, the Clooney family has had multiple generations of actors. Many of us are familiar with George Clooney. Uh, the Barrymore family has multiple generations of actors. Many of us are familiar with Drew Barrymore. If you watch It's a Wonderful Life this Christmas, her great-great-granduncle, um, grand, Lionel Barrymore, you will see him as Mr. Potter. The Barrymores have been acting for generations. Uh, the Fonda family has multiple generations of actors. Some of us are familiar with Jane Fonda and all of her family. Acting is in their blood. Uh, you see this even with faith leaders, where you have Billy and Franklin Graham or Charles and Andy Stanley. It's in their blood. There are certain things that just seem to be in a family's bloodline. Uh, Jesus is in the line of Judah. So let's take a quick look at Judah and his family and just see what's in their blood. Um, the line of Judah, which Jesus comes from, the passage we just read talks about a ruler, a ruler coming from Judah. Going back to verses 10 to 12, where it says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. It says things like, scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff, but there's one coming, a descendant who will rule. And there is some language, even in that passage, which uh, is very reminiscent. It kind of reminds us of Jesus, the donkey, the colt, if you are familiar with the triumphal entry story, or the phrase, wash his garments in wine, robes in the blood of grapes, sounds a little bit, communion sounds a little bit like the blood of Jesus at the crucifixion. Revelation 5.5 5 says, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Judah is called a lion. Jesus is called the lion of Judah. 
There is this lion imagery around Jesus. It's an image of leadership. And yet, when we think of Christmas, uh, we don't think of lions. Have you ever seen a Christmas card with a lion on it, a Christmas card like this one? Okay, no one sends a Christmas card like that because lions have nothing to do with Christmas. Um, but Jesus, when he was born, he was called the king of the Jews. But yet the image of a lion, of being a strong, dominant leader, it's really not a part of the Christmas story. Part of being in the line of Judah is ruling. And the question is, why? What was it about Judah that made ruling a part of his family line? Was Judah charismatic? Was he a dynamic speaker? Did he have strong organizational skills? Was Judah a visionary? Let's go back and see what characteristic makes Judah and his line fit to lead. Now, when we look at the line of Judah, we need to look at the relatives. We need to look at Judah's relatives. The makeup of a family can tell you something about the family. Just how a family is made up, you can learn something about that family. The first seven years of my parents' marriage, my mother was basically perpetually pregnant. She was always expecting a child in the first seven years of my parents' marriage. They were married in the summer of 64. My sister, Mary, was born in June of 65. My sister, Anne, September of 66. My brother, Brian, October of 67. My mother got pregnant again, had a miscarriage. She got pregnant again after that. My brother, Tony, was born in April of 70, and I was born in September of 71. Basically, from the fall of 64 to the fall of 71, my mom was pregnant. It's just the way it was. Then my younger brother, Matt, was born in August of 77. And just from that information, you could probably guess what we called my younger brother, Matt, okay? Called him the accident. That's not nice. Don't do that. Uh, but we did. Uh, but just from that information, you could probably guess that how the first five of us interacted with each other and those dynamics were different than how we interacted with my younger brother who came six years later. How a family is made up can tell you about that family. Now, going back to verses 8 and 9 from the passage where it says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? Judah's brothers will praise him. His father's sons will bow down. It's references to Judah's family, his family of origin. And here's what you have to know about Judah's family of origin. Judah's family of origin was messed up. It was messed up. Um, and how a family is made up can tell you about that family. And Judah's family was messed up even in how it was made up. We need a chart just to track Judah's family of origin. So we have a chart for you. Go ahead and put the chart on the screen, okay? Um, Judah's father was Jacob. Jacob wanted to marry Rachel. She's in the blue. But Jacob was tricked into marrying her sister, um, Leah. Leah, or Leah, I'll probably pronounce it both ways. She's in the red. So he ended up marrying both of them, 
but he really loved Rachel. Rachel was the love of his life. Rachel, however, has problems having kids. Leah does not. Leah gives Jacob four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And having sons was a big deal in that time and culture. And so Rachel gets kind of desperate because she sees her sister having all these kids. And so she gives her servant Bilhah, who's in the green, to Jacob to have kids on Rachel's behalf. And so Bilhah gives birth to Dan and Naphtali. Well, Leah sees that. She says, well, two can play that game. If you can give a servant, I can give a servant. And so she gives her servant Zilpah, who's in the yellow, and Zilpah bears Jacob two more sons, Gad and Asher. And then Leah has two more sons herself, Issachar and Zebulun. And finally, God opens up Rachel's womb, and she gives birth to Joseph and Benjamin. But she dies giving uh, birth to Benjamin. Now, just looking at the makeup of this family, do you see the potential for family dysfunction? This family is messed up, and you can just see it from the chart. Now, here's what happens, is being the firstborn son in this culture comes with certain privileges, and that's a big deal. Jacob's firstborn is Reuben, but Reuben doesn't get treated like the firstborn. Joseph gets treated like the firstborn, even though he's number 11. And, be, because, and the reason for that is that Joseph is the firstborn of Rachel, the love of Jacob's life, who has now passed away. And just a reminder, Judah's mom is Leah, the wife of Jacob, who Jacob was tricked into marrying, not the love of his life. And so how do you think the sons of Leah feel about the sons of Rachel? Whatever it is, it's not good. It's not good. And so in the line of Judah, in his family, there is this rift. With all these crazy family dynamics, there is a ton of potential for conflict. And to make matters worse, Jacob does not hide the fact that Joseph is his favorite. Genesis 37 says, this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he had made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So here's what happens next, and you can read about this in Genesis 37. Joseph goes on to share some dreams he's been having about ruling over his family. That's not a good idea. And then Joseph, another time, goes to check on his brothers. And his brothers throw him into a pit and sell him into slavery, and then they go home, lie to their father Jacob, and they say Joseph was killed by a wild animal. Joseph is eventually sold into slavery in Egypt. Now, guess which brother came up with the idea to sell Joseph into slavery? I wonder which brother would have come up with such a plan. It was Judah. 
It was Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery. Uh, Judah was caught up in the jealousy and the hatred. And after this episode is all over, Genesis 38, the story focuses on Judah. And Genesis 38 tells what I would argue is probably the second weirdest story, bizarre story in the entire Bible. It's the Judah and Tamar story. Some of you know it. It's very bizarre. I'm not going to go into the details of it. You can read it and you can see how bizarre it is. It's just strange, 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 strange. But in that story, what I will point out about it is that Judah, two of Judah's sons die in that story. And Judah is left with only one son. So we have a family rift in the line of Judah. But also in the line of Judah, we have eventually reconciliation. The story of Jacob and Joseph and Judah and their brothers, it does have a happy ending. You can read about all of this in Genesis 39 to 45. And through a series of events and over a time of 13 years, Joseph becomes second in command in Egypt. And then there's a severe famine in the land. And through a dream of Pharaoh, Joseph sees this famine coming. And so Egypt had stored up an abundance of grain in preparation for this famine. And so people from all around come to Egypt to sell grain. And Joseph is in charge of all of it. And so his brothers eventually come to Egypt to buy grain because of the famine. And Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. And so he gives them grain, asks about their family, finds out that his brother Benjamin is still alive, but his father Jacob kept Benjamin at home. Why? Because there was no way Jacob was going to let another son of his favorite wife go with the rest of these guys. Last time it happened, didn't end well. Benjamin's staying home. Um, so Joseph tells them, if you want to come back and buy more grain, next time you come back, bring your brother Benjamin. And so they eventually get to the point where they need more grain. They convince their father Jacob, look, we have to take Benjamin with us. But they know that they absolutely have to return with Benjamin safely or it will devastate their father. And so they return to Egypt with Benjamin to buy grain from Joseph and they still don't recognize Joseph. And Joseph has his servants put a silver cup in the sack of grain on Benjamin's donkey, basically framing Benjamin. And Joseph then accuses the brothers of theft and they find the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. And Joseph threatens to imprison Benjamin. Joseph offers he says to all the brothers, you guys can return home in peace. Only your brother Benjamin has to stay. Benjamin will have to stay as a prisoner in Egypt and the brothers will have to go back to the father without him. And one brother, one of them, speaks up on Benjamin's behalf. One brother pleads for Benjamin. One brother offers to take Benjamin's place. And guess who offers himself to take Benjamin's place? It's Judah. 
Judah says to Joseph, take me instead. You see, Judah knows what it's like to lose two sons. Judah knows what it's like to only have one son left. And even though it isn't fair, Judah knows taking Benjamin's place is what his father would want. And so Judah says, take me instead. It is the first time in all of Scripture that one person offers himself to take the place of another person. It's what makes Judah fit to lead. It's what makes him a lion, willing to give himself up for another. And it's an origin story of the gospel. Judah is the first one in the whole Bible to ever offer himself for someone else. Jesus is in that line, the line of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Because what Judah does for one, Jesus does for all. Some families are just born for certain things. Taking our place and saving us by dying on the cross, it's what Jesus was born to do. It was in his blood. It's in his blood that we are saved. Judas saved a messed up family. Jesus saves a messed up humanity. Because as bad as Judas' family was, we are in much worse shape. Judah knew the heart of his father, what losing Benjamin would do to his father Jacob. And Jesus knows the heart of his father. He knows what it would do to the father to lose any of us. And so even though it's not fair, Jesus knows that this is what the father would want. And so Jesus takes the place of all of us. It's what he was born to do. It's all a part of the origin story of the gospel. It's Advent season when we prepare for the coming of Jesus. Jesus, the Lion of Judah, who offers to take the place of us all. And because of that, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Please pray with me. And Lord, I ask that you would restore in all of our hearts a renewed sense of awe and humility as we consider what Jesus, our Lord and Savior, was born to do. And Lord, I would ask that you would soften all of our hearts and be open to what Jesus, our Lord and King, has to say to us this Christmas season. And it's in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus we pray. Amen. Receive God's blessing. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.